Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Uh, looks like we got several folks online already. I'm going to try to get comfortable here and uh, get all set up for y'all. Let's move that so you can't see that. And uh, yeah, it is so surreal. So good to be together together this morning. Uh, yeah. This is very strange. Let's just be honest. Kevin mentioned it last week. Uh, I'm sitting in a room with a bunch of boxes that we haven't even unpacked yet uh, from having moved down here. I tried to cover some of them up. I did get my plant back there uh, as a shout out to, to Kevin. And uh, yeah, but this is very strange. Uh, I, I want to say up front, uh, and we might say this every week, uh, that this video live stream uh, thing cannot replace the normal experience of worshiping together. It, it can't replace the experience of, of singing together, of sitting under the word together, of communing together with Christ. Uh, but in these days, we've chosen to do what we can, not as an equal replacement or new way of doing things, but as a concession for times such as these. Uh, during the height of the Soviet Union's Iron Curtain uh, and, and Stalin's persecution of Christians, uh, there were stories coming out uh, of Russia of, of people clinging to their radios, trying to pick up uh, Christian radio stations where they could hear the outside world. Uh, but more than that, so they could hear God's word and songs about God and, and his reality and be encouraged in their faith. And that's a little bit of what we are doing together through this medium. As we begin this morning, I uh, I just want to acknowledge this kind of strange reality. And if you uh, have just joined us recently, um, my name is Eric. I am new to the staff here at Anthem, and I'm excited to share this moment with you, to, to be on with you, and, and hopefully uh, dig into God's Word together. But as we, as we begin this morning, I want to ask... How are you doing? I realize that's a, a funny question coming through this medium as if I could empathize with you through this, but I still want you to ask yourself, how are you doing? Think about it. Are you feeling isolated yet? Alone? Out of sync? In a funk? Maybe you feel the opposite. Maybe you feel the opposite of, of isolated. You feel cooped up with your loved ones and thinking you might love them better if you could get some alone time. So how are you doing? We're going to dive into a passage this morning uh, that tells of four of God's people who experienced some of what uh, many of us are feeling. Their situation was more intense certainly more violent, uh, but much of our feelings as we face life during a pandemic and, and sheltering in place, well, there's points of connection to our passage. So I'm encouraged to be getting into this passage together. Kevin got us started last week uh, in this book of Daniel, and we're going to be back in chapter one this morning. And while we, be looking, we will be looking in detail at verses eight to 21, uh, we're going to read the whole chapter because the first seven verses really set the, the story, they set the stage uh, for what we're going to be looking at in detail. So 
If you're just joining us or if you've been watching for a while now, if you have a Bible, grab it, uh, turn to Daniel chapter one so that you can uh, follow along and we can study God's word together. So Daniel chapter one, I'm going to be reading uh, starting in verse one all the way to verse 21. So let's go to Daniel one together. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He said, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. The king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year. King Cyrus. And church, uh, that's the word of the Lord. Let me pray for our time together. God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for Daniel chapter one. And we pray now as we dig into it, that you would speak through it. These are strange times that we are in. This is a strange medium for us as a church, but we pray that you use it. 
Would you not let any of this distract us uh, from you? And would we hear you speak to us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I love this story. I love Daniel chapter one. There is a reason that the first half of Daniel, you know, is part of the greatest hits of all the, the children's Bibles and veggie tales and all that kind of stuff. The stories are, are, are so fun and they're such great storytelling. But they're also history and they're God's word for us. And so I want us to look at three aspects of this story that I think will help us to live faithfully in our time and place. So our outline for this morning is this. We're going to see three things. We're going to see the king commanded, Daniel resolved, and God gave. Okay, that's going to organize our time together. Let me say that again. The king commanded, Daniel resolved, and God gave. Let's jump into our first part. The king commanded. The king's command is the backdrop to the drama of our passage. As we jump into verse 8, we need to see what came before. Now, some of this will be review from last week, but that's okay. It's worth it. Uh, so in the year 605 BC, about 117 years after the northern kingdom fell to Assyria, the Babylonian empire, led by their king, Nebuchadnezzar, sacked Jerusalem, took over the southern kingdom, and deported many Jews back to Babylon. Now, Daniel and his friends, they were some of those Jews taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, I'm going to ask you to get your map of the Middle East out. If you didn't know you have one, it's your left hand. Okay, pull out your left hand and look at your palm. Don't, don't look at me. Look at your hand. Okay, look at your hand, your left palm. Okay, your thumb, imagine that is Egypt. Okay, your thumb is Egypt. And right here, this kind of uh, the crook of your, of your hand where it turns, that's Israel. Okay, you have Egypt over to Israel. Uh, if you're wearing a ring on your ring finger, that's about where Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, was. And then over, you're kind of the knuckle, but below your pinky. That's Babylon. Okay, so from Israel to Babylon, that is 1,000 miles. Okay, for those local, that's about the same distance as from Camarillo to Denver. So Daniel and his friends, they are forcefully picked up, taken, forced to, to march across an arid landscape, a desert from Jerusalem all the way to Babylon, 1,000 miles. Now, Daniel, from what we can tell, never went home again. He remained in Babylon for the rest of his life. In fact, chapter 1, verse 1 to 21, it covers 70 plus years because it begins, it tells us verse 1, from the third year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and then it ends, verse 21, with the first year of King Cyrus, who's a Persian. That's 70 years. In fact, chapter 1 is full of so many seemingly pointless details uh, that are actually little arrows to things later in the book uh, that will come up. Things like vessels from the house of God and the Persians and the wisdom and the dreams and the visions. All of that uh, is what we have in store over the next several weeks. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar, he has the physical power to bring Judah to her knees, but there's an important psychological battle going on. The king's overthrow of the Jews would only be successful if he could eventually turn the Jews into Babylonians. Now, this is exactly what he tries to do, and he does this through four things. He does this through isolation, indoctrination, what I'm going to call softening, uh, and re-identification. Okay, he does it through isolation. Not only are they exiled and taken to a foreign land, but then Daniel and his friends are pulled away from their people that are there in exile and put into this special education camp for the political servants. They're, they're, they're separated out from their family and from their people. 
They're indoctrinated. They're put through this education program where they learn the wisdom and the literature and the religion of the Babylonians. Then they go through this softening, which is uh, they're not only softened in their flesh, they're fattened up, but they're also buttered up. They're treated to this luxurious diet in a way to, to get them to let their guard down and that they might adapt and assimilate to Babylonian culture. And then finally, they are re-identified. They, they are given new names, new identities as a means to try to make them Babylonian. Now, all four of these, indoctrination, isolation, softening, new identity, re-identification, all of these should strike us as familiar because our three enemies today are the world, our own sin, and the devil. Well, they come at us with similar tactics today. To add to the trauma that Daniel and his friends are going through, they likely were also castrated and made into eunuchs. Okay, Daniel, we know this because Daniel's boss was called the chief of the eunuchs. Okay, he's, he's the boss. And then also, we know just historically that if they're going to stand before the king, if they're going to be in his court, well, they can't be around his harem, all his concubines and whatnot, uh, and, and stand there as rivals. So most likely, uh, they were castrated as well. Now, this is a uh, uh, international crisis. Daniel is forced now to figure out life in exile. And the king's command for this three-year re-education camp, it's the center of Daniel's problem, the center of the drama in our passage. But it's not just an international crisis. It is also a deeply personal crisis. Daniel's taken from his home. He was in the royal court, which means he he had freedom, he had luxury, he had means, comfort, and then he is hauled off to be a slave. His loss and his trauma are profound. Yet as we will see, he responds faithfully to God in the midst of his troubling situation. Now, as we approach this text in 2020, our problems are different, but there are a lot of points of connection. It would be wrong to say that what we're going through is the same. It's not, but we can draw some similarities. Our problems may not be the direct commands of kings, but they probably feel disorienting nonetheless. For some this morning, the problem they're thinking about is COVID-19. It's dominating their headspace, their anxiety, their worries. But for others, it may be something else. Death of a loved one or a bad diagnosis, maybe a layoff at work, maybe retirement accounts that aren't looking as good as a month ago. Maybe you're facing unemployment or underemployment. Maybe it's infertility or miscarriage. Maybe it's unexpected singleness or divorce. Whatever it may be, our problems can come raging at us and can evoke similar feelings to what Daniel might have felt. And the question for us is, will we similarly respond faithfully to how God would have us live in our exile? We can ask, what, what can we learn from Daniel and his friends about how to live in the Babylon in which we find ourselves? And this brings us to the second part of our story. Part one was the king commanded. Part two is that Daniel resolved. Now, many commentators have argued uh, that verse eight is the key verse of chapter one. Okay, in spite of everything going on around him, Daniel resolved. 
He resolved to live in faithfulness to God and to disrupt the Babylonian plan uh, to brainwash him and turn him into one of their own. Now look at verse 8. Look at what it says, okay? It says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Okay, what does that mean, to defile himself with the king's food? There's some, some question as to why Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. And several views are popular. Okay, some think that Daniel and his friends, well, they're trying to stay away from foods that are ceremonially unclean. Think kosher laws in the Old Testament. But this doesn't seem likely because the Old Testament does not really ever prescribe a vegetarian diet. And drinking wine is never forbidden in the Old Testament, though drunkenness is definitely condemned. And wine shows up in, in all kinds of the uh, feasts and the, and the proscriptions uh, that we find in the law. Others think that uh, Daniel and his friends, that they're trying to avoid foods that had been previously offered to idols. Uh, thus, maybe they would contaminate themselves spiritually, participate in the idol worship of the, of the Chaldeans. But this also is, is, seems unlikely uh, because most likely even the vegetables would have been offered uh, in such a context to, to some god. Another view holds that maybe Daniel and his friends, they became vegetarians for health reasons. Uh, you know, they were vegan before it was cool to be vegan, you know, before coffee shops offered oat milk for your latte. Uh, but this is definitely anachronistic as they did not have the same views on diet uh, and health back then that we do today. You know, food was scarce and you relished any chance you got to have a fatty meal. Most likely what's going on is more subtle. Daniel and his friends, uh, probably, at least in my view, avoided the food from the king's table as a way of guarding against the temptations of the culture. They were marking themselves off in their own minds, saying, hey, no, 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 I belong to someone else. They used their diet as a way of retaining some semblance of a distinctive identity as Jewish exiles and avoiding complete assimilation into Babylonian culture, which was the king's goal with these conquered subjects. See, with this restricted diet, they continually remind themselves in this time of testing that they were the people of God in a foreign land. Now, don't forget the context of the king's command. This was a severe test. They had to face not merely the fact of living in Babylon as exiles, but also the demand that they become political servants. They have to join, you know, the imperial state. Think about the four things, okay, the four things that they were put through and notice what they said yes to, what they consented to and what they resolved not to do. They said yes to isolation in their political career. They said yes to a pagan education. They said yes to new names, but they said no to food. I mean, even the names, if, if you read Daniel, Daniel never calls himself by his Babylonian name. He, he refers to himself as Daniel. But there are places where he allows others, the Babylonians, to call him that. And even the writer, the author of, of Daniel, uh, names him that at, at one point. So this goes back to what Kevin talked about last week. The fact that they said yes to three things, but no to this. See, they are, they are finding that balance between separatism and syncretism. That's what Kevin taught us last week. See, they did not choose total separatism and withdraw into a Jewish ghetto. And nor did they refuse to compromise at all costs and, and, and lose their lives to become martyrs. 
They didn't choose separatism, but they also didn't choose syncretism and just accept all that the king commanded. No, they resolved to not defile themselves with the king's food. I even love the discernment and wisdom that Daniel shows in negotiating this little deal with the chief of the eunuchs. See, the chief is no fool. He does not want to get into trouble for letting these guys buck one part of the system. No, he tells Daniel in verse 10, you can look at it. He says, don't endanger my head with the king. I like where it is right here on my neck. Thank you very much. No, leave it where it is. But Daniel, he shows a bit of deference. Okay? He sympathizes with his captor and works out this little plan in verse 12. You see, they'll do a, a 10-day money-back guarantee, a 10-day trial, and see how it goes. If they are worse off for retaining this little semblance of their distinction as God's people, well, then the jig will be up, and they'll give in to the king's command or maybe perish. But hear this. As a result of that tough but discerning choice, they were able not only to serve Babylon, but in some ways to influence it and even preserve the lives of their fellow Jews at a later stage, as we'll see in later chapters. They did what we read about, read about in Jeremiah 29 last week. They sought the welfare of the city and found in it their welfare and welfare for those around them. See, these four men or boys who would not compromise with the world ended up being the most useful to the world. See, they modeled what Jesus prayed for his disciples the night before the cross in John 17. Daniel and his friends were in the world, but not of the world. Now, if we are serious about being followers of Christ, we will be committed to keeping ourselves similarly undefiled in this world. Our resolve will not only be to holiness, but to a, a holiness that does not withdraw. That is, we need to learn to, to keep ourselves undefiled in this world. So what does this mean for us here now in 2020? You know, this is where we have to do some heart reflection and consider this for ourselves. Because each of our contexts are so different and that we can be tempted in different ways. It's not going to be the same for all of us. But you need to ask yourself uh, and, and, and do your own personal heart reflection. A, fir a first question might be this. Is there anything in my life, anything in my life, that distinguishes me from those around me who don't love Jesus? And if not, we may be in the world and of the world. The next question could be, what are the particular pressure points that I feel to compromise? If you can't identify any, then ask, you know, what is the social currency in my workplace or among my friends or among my neighbors? Okay, what's what's social currency? Okay, what, what is the thing that gives me street cred? It gives me social weight. It makes me feel accepted or part of things. That's the social currency. Those are the things that may be pressure points when it comes to compromise. Now, it's important to remember that the Christians have abstained from all kinds of things over the centuries, and not all of them were explicitly evil. Okay, Christians have abstained from plenty of things that violated their conscience or defiled them in their time and place, but they weren't explicitly sin. You know, even our electronic fast that we're doing together is an example of resolve. Okay, we're pausing from things that aren't necessarily sinful to remind ourselves that we belong to God. 
and to increase our longing for him. It's good for us to to press into this for ourselves. And my hope is that you'll get to talk more about this with your community group this week. We need to ask, you need to ask, what is it for you? It would be easy to immediately jump into our context of COVID-19 and, and answer this question with how people are acting during this weird time. But I encourage you to think about that, but also beyond that. I'd encourage you to consider life before COVID. You know, maybe this season is an opportunity to do a, a heart and a life check. To consider our normal ways of life that God might want us to use this time to prune that God might want to prune these things in us. You know, maybe the, the Holy Spirit has been pricking your conscience because of that one group of friends, that one group of coworkers maybe, and, and your behavior among them. Maybe the Holy Spirit's been, been convicting you lately about that group of friends that you, you find yourself always having one too many drinks when you're with them. Maybe you've been convicted lately that with that one group of coworkers, your language tends to slip. Maybe you joke more coarsely or you use words that dishonor God or you, you gossip a little too freely. Maybe your online presence has been too aggressive, too brash, too political, or maybe too curated, too perfect, too fake. Maybe you have a temper or short fuse, and you, you take it out on your spouse or your kids or the people that you supervise at work. Maybe you've succumbed to addiction, whether it be prescription medication or other drugs, to porn, or just to consuming online content. You find yourself powerless to stop behaviors that you know at a minimum, aren't God's best for you, or worse, are a direct violation of his will for your life. We all have an opportunity to take stock and ask, what would it look like for me to resolve to pursue sanctification? To resolve to, to take steps to remind myself of, of who it is to whom I belong. To resolve to, to live faithfully in my time and place. Now, I promise you, there will not be a single Christian who arrives in eternity in the fullness of God's presence and says, you know, I really wish I would have indulged more in all of those sinful behaviors. You know, I really missed out. I wish I could have that time back and go back and do that differently. No, not, not a single person who arrives in eternity will say that. No, but there will be many who bow their heads in, in knowing remorse and accept the warm forgiveness of a God who paid for their lack of resolve. So we need to take stock of, of our lives and consider what would it mean for us to resolve in our time and place. Now, in asking, how can we be like Daniel? We should also ask, how did Daniel get to be like Daniel? You know, how did he have this resolve? Was his character just, you know, did he come out of the womb extra holy and, and better than everyone else? Or was his character forged along the way? Well, this is fascinating. We're told in verse 3 that Daniel and his friends are, are most likely from the royal family or the nobility. 
this is means that, that it's likely that they grew up in the royal court before they were captured and deported. So they spent their formative years growing up under King Josiah. You say, okay, who's King Josiah? He was one of the greatest kings of Judah after David. He was known for his, his godly zeal and influence and his nationwide reforms. Later today or this week, you can read about him in, in 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23. But these four, four boys, teenagers, they watched a godly king lead the people in repentance and faith. They were discipled towards faithfulness. They watched a great leader place his hope, his faith in God, keep their, their focus on God, and to pursue faithfulness among a wicked people abroad. This formation, this discipleship that took place for these four young men, it gave them confidence to trust in their God, even when it seemed like their world was crashing down. And this brings us to our last point. So the king commanded, Daniel resolved, and lastly, our third part, God gave. God gave. Daniel and his friends, they had this resolve because of their unwavering trust in God's good and loving sovereignty. We can see this in the repetition of, of verse 2, verse 9, verse 17, that phrase, God gave, God gave, God gave. See, God is sovereign over nations, over interpersonal influence, and over our work. This is so key for us to see because so often our trials, our crises, well, they blind us to this reality. Remember those four things we talked about earlier? Isolation, indoctrination, softening, re-identification. All of those, they, they whittle away at our ability to see God in the midst of our crises. See, our king and his kingdom, they, they so often can feel so far away. Jesus and his reign, they, they may be a appear as things of the ancient past or else things yet to be, but not here now with you and me. But the good news of this passage, both for the original readers and for us today, is this. God is still at work. God is still at work. This gives us confidence to know that, that it is possible to remain faithful to Christ in our own day and fruitful in our own life work. Now those words in verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. They, they jump off the page as, as, as these bright rays of hope in the midst of a lot of darkness, this, this totally black backdrop. Pastor David Helm, he writes this about it. It was so encouraging. He says, and the Lord gave a sentiment of comfort to bolster readers who find themselves waiting for the arrival of God's promises. And the Lord gave a balm in the midst of disquieting surroundings. And the Lord gave when everything seemed lost and when it seemed life seemed not worth living. God was yet working his purposes out. God is in charge. God is in charge. And knowing this, gave Daniel his resolve because he knew that, that they were ultimately dependent for their food, indeed for their very lives, upon God and not King Nebuchadnezzar. They could resolve because they knew that, that God gave them life and not their captors. And we need to know this too. 
too often in pain and in crisis, the normal response is to think that God is far away. We think, how could God allow this? You know, he must be cruel or or distant or both. And to talk about God's sovereignty and to see him in control, even of this, well, it's, it's to declare his nearness in the midst of our trouble. And that's exactly the truth we find here in chapter one. So we see God's good sovereignty play out again in God giving Daniel favor with his supervisor, the chief. You know, their plan of a trial run works because God gave them favor. God made them supernaturally fatter on vegetables. That's not normal, okay? It's a miracle. But God's good sovereignty also plays out in their work. You know, it shapes them to be 10 times better than all their spirit, the other spiritual advisors. Look at your Bibles. Look at verse 20, okay? It says, literally, uh, they were 10 hands better. Meaning, with their two hands, they could do the work of, of five other men. Okay, this figure of speech, it's, it's all about work and their ability to do more. They weren't just smarter or wiser. They were more useful to the king. But I love the way that God uses these young men in this time. See, God gives the miracle, but they act the miracle. He uses them, but they participate. Our text tells us that not only did they work hard in their studies, but also that God gave them the understanding of all they were learning. They act the miracle. They work hard. And at the end of their work, they say, look at what God did. This is how God still works today. So Paul, talking about his ministry in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Or in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he talks about our own salvation and sanctification. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now hear this. Daniel's resolve, it lives in between the king's command and God's gift, in between the king's command and God's sovereignty, in response to the king's command, but in light of God's sovereignty. His resolve lives in between the world's problems and God's hand. And we can live faithfully in our times because we pursue faithfulness in between the world's problems and our confidence in God's plan. We live in response to the world's problems, but in light of our sovereign God who is still at work. In my community group this week, we were talking about this. We were talking about this, this perspective of God's sovereignty. And in our group, we talked about kind of the need for what we, we label double vision. You know, the ability to see both. To both see that the here and now, the problems on the ground, not just neglect them or pretend they're not there, but also to see the bigger picture. To see that God's sovereignty means that there's a bigger story at play that, that we are living in. And it's his story, not ours. See, we can live now in response to the world's problems, but in light of a sovereign God who's still at work. And to resolve, like Daniel, in our time and place, we need to see what Daniel saw. That God gave. 
that he was at work, that he was present, that he was sovereign, and King Nebuchadnezzar was not. But as Christians, we have the privilege of seeing more than Daniel saw. We get to see and be transformed by the better Daniel, Jesus Christ. See, Daniel saw God's sovereignty in the midst of the king's command. But Jesus, like Daniel, he saw God's sovereignty over Pilate's command that he be crucified. He said, you wouldn't be allowed to do this. We're not allowed for it to happen by my father in heaven. Daniel resolved to live faithfully to God in his exile. Jesus resolved to live faithfully in his incarnation, in his perfect life lived for you, but also to die faithfully, resolving to submit himself to God by saying, not my will, but yours be done. And he did that for you. God gave Daniel favor or grace with his captor and gave him life, miraculous health and vitality with a diet of vegetables. And God gives us grace, favor, and life through the death of his son. God gave Israel over to exile, into exile, to judge them for their sin and wake them up to their sin. But God gave Jesus over to death on a cross to be judged on our behalf, to take on our sin, that we might be set free from it. See, we can resolve because we were bought with a price. And so Paul, talking about living faithfully in, in his time and place, even in his suffering, he says this in Romans chapter 8. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. For we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When we see all that he did for us, all that it cost God for us to have life, we can have confidence that he is still at work. These things around us, they feel big, but in God's big picture, he's sovereign over them and he is at work in the midst of them. And when we see this, well, it transforms our hearts. It shapes us to live faithfully in our times. We can resolve in between the problems of the world and all that God gives us in his son. Let me pray. God, we thank you for this time that we, I guess, share together through this medium. For those who are doing this live and those who will We'll have watched this later, but God, we, we pray that you use it. Not anything that I had to say, but use your word to shape us for our time and place. That these are weird days for us. And we need you to give us wisdom, to give us life, to give us hope, to give us perspective. That we might live faithfully 
for you in the here and now. God, we pray for our world. We pray that you would miraculously bring an end uh, to this pandemic, that you would preserve life. God, do this for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. So we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, I want to thank you for being a part of this with us, uh, with me. Um, and, and thank you for, for or maybe even watching this uh, after the fact later. I want to encourage you, you know, when we are able to gather in person, after we open God's word together, we say that we kind of offer four ways of responding. Uh, we can sing together. We can take communion together. We have prayer teams available. And, and then there's also an opportunity to give of our, of our monies that we might be generous and respond to God in that way. And Kevin has prepared uh, those four responses. You can find them on our website uh, on, the, on the Sunday resources page. There's, there's kind of an outline of different ways that we can respond in those ways. Casey has put together a Spotify playlist uh, that you could sing along with or, or have kind of the words be sung over you as you're preparing lunch, but but let's respond now to God's word. Uh, you can find those resources on our website. I encourage you to look there uh, when this is over. And then please be in touch this week with your community group, with the pastors if you need anything. Uh, we can't physically be together, but we can still connect on the phone or online. And we want to make sure that as a church, we are remaining uh, connected together in Christ. So thanks again. We love you and uh, are excited to get to do this as, as different as it is. So thanks again.